Hey everyone, this is Jason, and welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. For today's episode, I spoke with Siddharth Kara, who has been researching human trafficking for 21 years, but most recently has been working to expose the horrors from the mining of cobalt in the Congo. Cobalt is a metal that is used in every rechargeable lithium battery, so it's in what I'm using to record this podcast, and it's in whatever you're using to listen to it. While cobalt touches all of us on a daily basis, do we really know where it comes from? This episode is extra special for me because in my last semester at UC Berkeley, when the idea for Bold Moves Only was really formulating, Siddharth came on campus to discuss Tainted Garments, his previous research on the conditions of the home-based garment sector in India, and it was really inspiring and definitely helped to shape what I've been doing for the last few years. So having him on the podcast was a bit of a coming full circle moment. This is an important discussion to be had, and I'm glad that you are all taking the time to listen. Let's get into it. Hi, Siddharth. Welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. Hi, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you have been researching human trafficking for over 20 years, but how did you first get into it? I know that you were an investment banker, and that seems to be quite the jump. Uh, yes. Well, the, the journey, in fact, started um, several years before that, uh, uh, back in the mid-1990s when I was an undergraduate um, student. I uh, helped put together a project to volunteer in refugee camps in the former Yugoslavia, uh, and spent a full summer at a Bosnian refugee camp uh, in the region. And uh, I heard a lot of horrific stories of genocide and executions, um, but also some stories of Serbian soldiers who would round up women and girls and traffic them off to rape camps and brothels uh, in the region. And that's the first time I sort of came across this phenomenon of um, human trafficking. I didn't really know what to do with that at the time. Um, I didn't fully understand the implications of it, but those stories um, stayed with me um, as the years went by and then and then skip ahead a few years to um, uh, the late 90s when I was an investment banker uh, reflecting on uh, what did I really want to do with my life and and those stories, uh, as I said, it always stuck with me. So I started looking around to see are, are these types of things still happening and if so what's being done about it and um you know now mind you we're in the year sort of 98 99 um not much out there other than some sort of you know journalistic stories anecdotal reports um and i thought well you know, if i'm ever going to try something that's uh, uh risky like this uh, that would be the time when i was sort of young and un unencumbered so i i left banking and uh, in the summer of 2000 took my first trip uh, to research sort of the broad scope of slavery, child labor and human trafficking, spent about five months um, in East Asia, South Asia and Eastern Europe. And uh, that was that trip kind of redirected my life. I realized that this is something I wanted to to try to make a contribution to uh, to understand and hopefully address in some small way. And um, as you said, now 20, now 21 years later, uh, I'm still at it. 
and it has only been a few years since I came to see you present your findings from Tainted Garments, which discussed the exploitation of women and girls in India's home-based garment sector, and now you are presenting your findings from a completely different industry in a completely different place. You've done research all over the world, investigating many different sectors and industries. You've seen more than most how this is something that touches nearly everyone every day, and yet not nearly enough has been done to deal with it. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, slavery, child labor, labor exploitation, these are forms of um, exploitative economic relationships that go back eons, you know, since the dawn of civilization, one uh, set of people has been oppressing and exploiting uh, another, uh, whether it's slavery, uh, colonialism, um, uh, low wage, penny wage labor, you know, the there's there's a fundamental aspect of any economy, which is, and especially capitalist economies, which is uh, cut costs, minimize costs. Um, and labor is invariably one of the highest components to the cost structure of any business. So, you know, slavery and child labor are the manifestations of efforts to minimize or eliminate the cost of labor. Uh, but you ask a good question, which is these these issues have been with us for eons and, and, and into the present day, and yet largely goes unnoticed by people they carry on with their daily lives even though they they may buy clothes made by child laborers and eat food harvested by slaves um or talk on phones that have components and minerals mined through child labor and slavery um why isn't this a bigger issue well you know part of it is uh i think media saturation it's very difficult to 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 take and keep attention in, you know, in the broader landscape, which is why this podcast you're doing is so important. The other part of it is, I think, frankly, people tend to not be as invested in addressing problems that aren't right in front of them. And uh, even though slavery uh, infects just about every country in the world, it's, it's often hidden away or tucked away uh, out of sight and therefore out of mind. And that's why it's so important to highlight this, the, the point you made in your question, which is this touches our lives. You may not see it. You may not see the six-year-old girl weaving your shirt. You may not see the eight-year-old boy caked in filth mining cobalt um, uh, and on and on and on down the list. But this happens and we consume it and it touches our lives every day. And I think highlighting that connectivity uh, will help us focus attention and keep attention on the issue of, of finally uh, eradicating slavery from the world. How do we reconcile the fact that not only does it happen, but that a lot of our economy actually relies on this kind of exploitation? Well, like I said, you know, this is part of this is part and parcel of um, particularly post global war, uh, global capitalism, you know, search out the lowest cost production environments, low-cost inputs, uh, low-cost labor, which is fine. Companies should find ways to be profitable, but it typically, and more and more often, that means sourcing cheap labor in, in under-regulated or even corrupt contexts in the global south. Um, and you can see this as part of a continuum. You know, first there was 
trafficking people from the global south into slavery. Then there was colonizing the global south and enslaving them right where they where they were. And now, you know, with the increase in the speed and reduction in cost of transportation, um, we can exploit low wage or uh, underregulated or shadow labor markets and transport goods to Western uh, markets f for cheap. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's, that's sort of why these things persist and why it's so important to shine a light on not just the issue, but the, the connective tissue between us and them. Hmm. Last question before we get into your findings in the Congo, but I've been thinking about this a lot, how, why is it that whenever it becomes public that certain industries and companies have these human rights abuses in their supply chain, there's no sense of urgency to eradicate it. Take chocolate, for example. The Harkin-Engle Protocol was an international agreement signed in 2001 that aimed at eliminating the worst forms of child labor by 2005. And these companies just didn't do it at all. The date keeps getting pushed back because they're not hitting their goals. Shouldn't the agreement be more like, figure it out now or you can't sell chocolate? And that may sound extreme, but what's more extreme is human trafficking. Well, you know, your question cuts to the heart of, of the matter, which is, you know, we don't care enough about those people over there. And, you know, those people over there is in quotation marks. You, you and your listeners will know what I mean by that. Uh, darker skinned, poor people. We just don't care as much about them. And yeah, when these things are highlighted, journalists go and do some excellent reporting or an NGO gathers some information and, and issues a report. Um, there's a lot of energy. People get uh, very agitated and excited uh, for a period of time. And maybe some protocol is passed. Maybe some policies are discussed. Um, uh, but it's on paper. And, it, you know, that's seen as sort of a win. And we've done this and industry will self-correct and uh, uh, adjust behavior so let's just carry on with the business of the day. And, and it doesn't work that way, right? It's just on paper. And then once the attention is shifted, it's back to business as usual. Um, and that's been sort of the, the, the rolling dynamic of efforts to abolish slavery in the modern context for at least for at least as long as I've been at this, which is more than 20 years. Uh, a lot written down on paper, a lot of little policies talked about, a lot of agencies declaring victories or achievements, and it very often just doesn't translate into real progress on the ground. So now let's move to the Congo. You've done research over the past few years, and could you tell us what the conditions are for those who are mining cobalt? Well, what I've seen, from what I've seen in the in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, I, I feel confident in saying this. In, in all the 20 plus years that I've been researching slavery and child labor, I have never encountered a more extreme uh, form of oppression and exploitation linked to so much value and wealth. The bottom of the chain and the top of the chain, there is no greater asymmetry, no greater delta in the 
sharing uh, uh, of, the, of the economic value that's generated by that chain as there is in cobalt. And what I mean by that is you have people at the bottom uh, in the Congo, uh, caked in filth and toxic grime, uh, children uh, and uh, uh, peasants uh, digging in hazardous, uh, often deadly conditions to pull cobalt out of the ground, earning maybe a dollar to two dollars a day uh, and then that cobalt flows up into the every single, as of today, every single lithium-ion rechargeable battery on the planet. So that means every smartphone, every tablet, every laptop, and above all, every electric vehicle has cobalt. And, and you might say, well, maybe they're getting the cobalt from some other place, not this, this horrible scenario you're talking about. Well, more than 70% of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in the Congo. So you can't avoid Congolese cobalt. Um, and so the companies that are selling us these smartphones and tablets are worth trillions of dollars. A and yet the people who make those devices and cars possible are suffering injury and death for maybe a dollar or two a day. And, and their entire environment is treated like a toxic dumping ground. Millions of trees have been clear-cut to make way for giant mines, industrial processing to semi-refined cobalt before export from the Congo dumps all kinds of toxic minerals, uh, toxic um, waste product into the earth, into the water, into the air. Fish stocks are polluted. Animal, animals are polluted. The food supply is polluted. People are uh, uh, suffering a pandemic of illness. Um, uh, and, and as well as injury and death. And all of this feeds into uh, and makes our daily lives possible and is the foundation of the supposed green and renewable energy revolution. So there's not, I've never seen anything quite as ugly and nightmarish uh, as, as what I've seen in the Congo. And I know that this is something that is much more complicated than it seems, but if about two-thirds of cobalt is mined in one country and then a significant percent of that is mined in a specific region, shouldn't that level of concentration make it easier to survey and address? I think the great, perhaps the greatest tragedy in this entire cobalt story uh, is that it would not be that difficult to fix the entire problem. If, if consumer tech and EV companies were to spend a little bit of their time, a little bit of their mental energy, and probably a rounding error of their balance sheets, they could solve this problem within months. It, it's not that difficult. It's just that no one cares. No one appears to care. Um, it's those people over there, and it's that land over there. It's not our water. It's not our air and it's not our children. So fine, we'll carry on with business as usual. And, and that's the greatest tragedy in all this. I think within months, you could probably solve 90% of the horror and misery taking place at the bottom of the global cobalt supply chain. Now you're part of a lawsuit against these major tech companies, Apple, Microsoft, Dell, Tesla, and Alphabet, Google's parent company. What exactly are you suing them for? Well, this is an initiative that I started uh, some years ago uh, after one of my trips there to the Congo. Um, 
you know, I'm writing a book on the subject. Um, I'll be doing an academic report as well. But the matter was just so urgent that I felt something um, something more urgent needed to be done. And that's when I began to think about strategic litigation as a way to try to compel companies to take accountability for their supply chains. It shouldn't be that uh, complicated of a concept. It's their supply chain. No one forced them to use cobalt. So they should take responsibility for that supply chain. So I, I began by working with colleagues on the ground to gather um, testimonies and depositions from families who either had lost a child or had a child suffer a grievous injury at a mine that I had already researched and I knew was linked to the supply chains of major consumer tech and EV companies. Um, you could sue probably every consumer tech and EV company in the world for the same grounds. Uh, now, there are only five defendants in the case uh, that I've moved forward uh, because number one, we're restricted to companies based in the U.S. Um, to file under claims under U.S. law. Uh, so that eliminates a lot of other companies. Um, and, and number two, uh, these are the supply chains that I had researched to this point. Uh, that doesn't mean it's an exhaustive list. But the point is for the voices of these people to be heard uh, in a court of law and hopefully to achieve some accountability from the defendants uh, and, and efforts to remediate uh, these, these issues at the bottom of their supply chain. So um, finding people who were willing to speak was of course a great challenge. Um, uh, the, the environment down there is, is very hostile to people who wanna speak out against what's happening in the mining sector because there's so much money at stake Finding a human rights attorney that I could engage to file the suit on their behalf was also uh, another step that had to be achieved. But uh, the suit has been filed and uh, justice will hopefully take its course. These things take time, but um, it's one of the ways in which I'm trying to address what's happening with Congo and Cobalt. And to give people listening a better picture, would you mind giving us an example of a story from a witness uh, in the lawsuit? Sure. Well, um, uh, I can give you one example, which is all too common. One one mother um, I met uh, and deposed uh, came and told us a story of, of her child who was working at a, a cobalt mining area near the city, uh, call, a city called Kolowezi. And uh, he had to drop out of school because the family couldn't afford the $6 per month school fees. Uh, and um, as many children do, their minds right next to just about every village in that area. So uh, children are uh, drawn into them to, to try to dig and, and earn. Um, there's not much else to do uh, in that part of the world. So her child was digging and um, one of the things that happens is uh, to get to the deposits of cobalt ore that are slightly higher grade, meaning a higher purity of cobalt uh, in the stone. Uh, they dig tunnels, and um, this is just by hand with shovels. So they, they dig tunnels 20, 30 meters deep in some cases, but there are no supports, there are no bolts or anything to, to hold the structure in place. And what happens is these tunnels can and often collapse, and that's what happened to this mother's child. Um, and there was a tunnel collapse and he and uh, many other children uh, and young young men were buried alive, digging cobalt for a dollar or two a day. And none of this ever gets reported in the media. None of it ever. These stories come out into the world uh, to 
to let people know exactly what goes into their phone and uh, and their car. Uh, but this was one case and uh, one example that I heard time and time again of mothers whose children or husbands were buried alive in tunnel collapses trying to dig out this cobalt that we that we rely on every day. And this is the first time that any of these companies have faced such a legal challenge. How have they responded? Well, it's it's moving slowly. Uh, they they responded with motions to dismiss uh, on various grounds, and uh, that will have to be argued as and when there's a hearing, uh, probably sometime later this year. It's it's all moving rather slowly. Part of that is because of COVID, naturally slowed things down um, for everyone. Uh, but you know we haven't even gotten into the meat of making substantial arguments yet. Um, um, but um, the, the sad thing is, rather than trying to dismiss the claims based on, you know, some legalese arguments or technicalities, uh, the company should just be saying, okay, you know what, thank you for raising this matter. Um, we didn't realize how bad it was. Uh, probably we should have. Let's sit down and, and try to fix this. Uh, I think that would be the decent way to approach this. Um, uh, it would certainly send the right signal that these companies care about uh, their supply chains. Uh, I don't see any reasonable argument for not wanting to uh, ensure that a, a, their supply chains are decent and dignified for every participant in that chain. Uh, but that's not the approach they've chosen to take. So, But I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that maybe in due course, um, these, uh, not just these defendants, but every company that's buying cobalt from the Congo will say, look, this is, a, th we didn't, maybe they didn't realize how bad it is. Uh, but now that they do, uh, let's sit down uh, with, uh, in a cooperative spirit uh, and make sure there aren't children being buried alive. Make, make sure p the environment of this, of the mining areas isn't being torn and, and treated like a toxic dumping ground. And that, People are earning a decent wage and they have safety equipment uh, uh, and uh, it, it just the, the, the same kinds of conditions we would expect for our people here uh, should be standard for those people there. I saw that Umacore, the metal and mining trader who sells the cobalt to these major tech companies, is based in Brussels. And when I saw that, I was just like, oh, it's like King Leopold never left. And then... The mines are owned by a company in Switzerland. Isn't this just colonization 2.0? Well, yeah, yeah, 2.0, 3.0. It's yeah, something point oh. And it, it's it, it it like I said, it's the same story. Um, you know, first Europeans took Africans and and uh, schlepped them across the Atlantic and. Put them into slavery uh, in their colonies uh, for cheap labor and plantation work, sugar and cotton and tobacco and so forth. Um, then when the slave trade was abolished, they thought, fine, let's just colonize Africa and enslave them right where they are. And that, of course, gets to Leopold. And after that, the Belgian Congo. And then phase three is, all right, fine, we'll just do this in a slightly more refined and layered way where we have these complicated multi-leveled supply chains that just put a lot of optical distance between us and them. Well, you see the cobalt first is out of the ground, then it goes to a processor in so and such country, then it goes to a refiner in another country, then it goes to a battery manufacturer in a third country, then it goes to a, um, a device or a car manufacturer in a fourth country, and then it gets sold in a fifth country. So 
man, how can we be held responsible for all those pieces down the chain? Well, the entire chain would not exist but for the demand for cobalt at the top. So you create it, you own it, it I think is a simple way to look at this. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's the same story repeating itself again and again. Foreign, particularly global north, uh, commercial uh, and economic interests, availing of cheap labor and input from people who seem to matter less. Uh, and, and one thing that should be noted here, China does dominate this entire chain up to the point of, of the consumer facing company. They dominate the mines in the Congo. Uh, yes, Glencore is there, a Swiss based, Swiss UK based company, a couple of Canadian companies, but China has uh, nine or 10 of the, of the 14 biggest copper cobalt mines in the Congo and at least 80% of the world's battery grade cobalt is is refined in China. Uh, Umacor, which is the new incarnation of Union Miniere de Hotkatanga, which was the uh, goes back to Leopold's time when they discovered copper. Cobalt wasn't uh, that valuable back then. It was all about copper. Uh, so yeah, there's a legacy there, but they're, and, and they're an important component to this whole thing. But uh, it's the Chinese companies really dominate not just cobalt, but many of the strategic and rare earth uh, mineral supply chains. Mm. And August Mutombo, who facilitated the field research that formed the evidence base for the suit, said that when the lawsuit went public, he received dozens of death threats in person and via telephone and text messages from people who claimed to be members of mining cooperatives. He moved to Zambia and went into hiding. How dangerous has it been for you and others involved to get all this information and move forward with this lawsuit? Well, this is this is one of the very challenging aspects of trying to move justice forward um, in dangerous uh, and oftentimes corrupt contexts. Uh, and, and and that danger and corruption is at least tacitly re relied upon by the stakeholders at the top. They, they know that it is so difficult um, to actually speak out and achieve progress uh, in a place like the Congo. Um, yeah, August is, is a dear friend and colleague of mine. We uh, we talked in advance about what the implications of filing this suit might be, and he was prepared to, to face them, and, and I was there to assist in any way I could. But, of course, he's the person on the ground. I'm safe and far away, um, um, but he's there in, in country. And, and yes, um, uh, people were not happy uh, because this threatens the economic chain, or it's at least bad PR. And he received a lot of threats. And so I had to assist with getting him and his family out of the country for quite a bit of time for their safety. Um, uh, things did then subsequently die down and, and, and he's back. And um, uh, but even even uh, this lawsuit was filed 14 months ago and even a few weeks ago, he told me um, one of his daughters, someone came up to one of his daughters on the street. Uh, and just made some threatening remarks that they they still they haven't forgotten. So you know he remains under duress, but he's a, a courageous, passionate uh, individual who cares deeply about his country and deeply about the plight being faced by uh, his countrymen uh, at the bottom of this supply chain. And um, uh, his his courage is an integral component of of all of my efforts 
um, uh, to, to try to advance justice for the artisanal cobalt miners of the Congo. So you are witness to some of the most heinous acts humans can do to one another. How do you push through that and continue doing this work? Well, uh, it's it, I, of all the people in the chain I'm a part of, um, uh, I have it the easiest. It, you know, this, this, this chain of people who are in this world of modern slavery, NGOs, policymakers, corporations, um, academics, researchers, it, it can be challenging uh, to work on uh, this topic, but it's the people at the bottom who have it the worst, the, the child laborers and the slaves. And, you know, as, as difficult as it may be to do this work or to do the research, to uh, see uh, the conditions in which people are treated as sort of subhuman beasts and to witness the destruction of, of their humanity and, the, and, and, and oftentimes the environment and the world around them, I still have it very, very easy relative to them. So there's, there's no scope or room for feeling any sort of burnout or, or even self-pity because um, they go through infinitely worse than I ever could. And what gives you hope that things will change? Uh, they, they do. The, the same, that the, the grit and courage and perseverance and dignity with which um, people treated as slaves um, persevere uh, around the world is the greatest uh, source of, of hope for me. It's a demonstration of the fortitude of, of the human spirit that our will and dignity can cannot be defeated by any uh, forces of, of, of greed and oppression uh, and corruption. Uh, and they may, they, uh, those forces may, may have victories, they may be um, persistent and even in some cases dominant across centuries, but the will to be free invariably prevails. It always does. It's just a matter of keeping the fight um, going. And um, I, I hope I'm one very, very, very small piece in a much, much bigger, long-standing, multi-century campaign of some of the greatest heroes we've ever had uh, fighting this fight. Uh, and um, uh, that's, that's, uh, I think that's, that's what gives me hope. And there's a quote in your book, Sex Trafficking, Inside the Business of Modern Slavery, that I really liked. You said, do not despair whether one person can have an impact, one person can listen, one person can learn. One person can draw a line in the sand and one person can convince another person to act. On that, I will end with a question I ask everyone. What would you say to someone who wants to make an impact but doesn't know where to start? Learn. I think knowledge is so important on this topic because the very first effort to abolish slavery, uh, which began in England in 1787, uh, was waged on a on a basic premise, which is when people learn the horrors of slavery and how it touches their lives, they will do the right thing. Uh, now that premise was tested. There was no guarantee that it would hold, uh, but it did. Uh, it did in the end, and because I think, in essence, the majority of people in the world are essentially good and compassionate. 
So if people learn and then share what they learn uh, and a, a sufficient critical mass of people become aware of these horrors, I have no doubt that they will find some way uh, to make a contribution uh, to bringing a final end to slavery uh, in our world. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Siddharth, for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jason. Okay, thank you all for listening. I just want to remind you that change really starts with you. It starts with you learning, sharing, speaking out, holding others accountable when it's required to do so. You can make a difference. So let's be bold.